Hi, this is Lauren Engel of Sidewalk Talk. We do a lot of interviews with EDM artists, pop artists, rappers, and people in the industry, letting you know what they do behind the scenes. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter through the handle Sidewalk Talk Show. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, this is Lauren Engel of Sidewalk Talk. I'm with Vitor Torres of Mind Hello. of a Genius. Also, shout out Jay from Wave for linking us, <laughs> introducing us. And so, where were you born? Born here in LA. Was music like huge when you were growing up already for you? Music was something that was always in my family. Mm -hmm. um, but being Cuban and growing up in a Cuban household, Cuban music was more prevalent than anything else. So yeah, music was always part of my life. What, do you remember the first record you bought? Like a record? Like a vinyl record? Yeah, or, that's or what CD it was or... Back then. Okay, yeah. Remember, I'm, I'm older. I'm, I was yeah. born in 1975. Yeah. So, uh, for me, I guess it was a vinyl record, but it was a Duran Duran record. So oh. My aunt was a big Duran Duran fan in the 80s, and I was like a little kid. So I was sort of surrounded by all of the Duran Duran. And what other type of music did you listen to back then growing up on your own? Uh, mostly hip-hop. Yeah. Break dancing, piece of cardboard out in the backyard, uh, parachute pants. So that was the kind of thing, the hip hop culture. Like afterwards, did you study music or were you just like... No, like I, a, I played drums interested. throughout yeah. junior high school. And then when I got to high school, I stopped playing drums and uh, yeah, just got into like graffiti and graffiti art and hanging out with my friends on the streets of LA. That was throughout high school. So yeah. then after high school, I went to school in Oregon, college in Oregon, for like mm -hmm. a hot second. Um, and then that didn't work out so well. What were you about to study in Oregon? I wanted to be a geologist with a major in volcanology oh my and a minor in art history. What did you love so much about that back then? I felt that volcanoes were like the beginning and end of everything. So I wanted to learn sort of like the beginning and end of where we all come from. That's so cool. Are your, like, where do you get that interest from? Are your parents like similar to that? No, I think I just like big things that explode and create new things that give life. What do your parents do? My father was an uh, interesting story. So I guess I'll give you the version that I tell mostly everybody. Yeah. My dad was a mortician, but then he was also like an undercover operative uh, in the 80s during the cartels here in Los Angeles. But he worked for the government. That was a long story. <laughs> and your mom? I don't mom? know if I should be staring, sharing that. Um, oh, no, yeah. Mother was just like a housewife. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, so you left Oregon, and what did you do after that? Left Oregon. Or do you just not want to go to school, or? No, it's like another long story. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I came back to LA. I uh, didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, and then one magical day, I opened up the LA Times newspaper, like physical newspaper, because mm -hmm. this is 1994, 95-ish. Um, and there was an ad in the classified section, so I was looking for a job. I didn't really know what I was going to do. There are no volcanoes to study in LA. So I needed a job, got a job at the LA Times working at a, the ad said $10 an hour office clerk, mailroom assistant, entertainment law firm, Century City, California. 
Mm-hmm. And I faxed my resume over. I had to make up a resume because I never really had a job before in that like administrative role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got hired. And that was kind of like my, looking back, that was my entry point into the record business. And that was in 1995. But the law firm that I got the job at was one of the most prestigious entertainment law firms in the world. And the lawyers that worked in this law firm and who were the partners represented every major music artist across oh, wow. a number of genres. Whether it was like Bob Dylan's publishing, some of the members of the band Journey, uh, the West Side Connection, uh, Virgin Records and all the Virgin artists. It's like, it was just crazy law firm. Um, and my job was just kind of to sit in the mailroom every day. First I would make coffee and like get the mail, but then yeah. I'd sit in the mailroom every day in front of this gigantic Xerox coffee machine and a wall filled with like file cabinets to the ceiling. And my job was to basically go through every piece of mail, photocopy it, mail the original document to the client, and then file away the photocopy in the enormous file cabinets that I had. But that was like day in, day out. And then I would also answer the phones at the reception area when the receptionist wanted to go to lunch for an hour. But while I was there, I was literally spending hours and hours in front of a photocopy machine that I would start to read and ask questions about things that I was photocopying. Mm. So whether it was a management agreement, a recording agreement, a publishing deal, um, Damn, you knew all the skills. <laughs> it just kind of gave me all of the skills and the insight into how to read contracts. When you say like ask, like, did you, was your manager not knowledgeable about all this stuff? Or like, who are you asking for like understanding these documents? I was talking to the lawyers that were negotiating them. Oh, so you had a, like a direct connection already to them? Well, no, because I was working for them. So oh, I was okay. in their law firm, in their mailroom. So back then it was all pushing paper. This is before really the internet. This is before, back then it was like pen, paper, fax machine, and a typewriter is what I had. So it's like, this is way before. So you had to have actual communication with human beings to understand what to do next, right? Mm-hmm. So if I had a question, if I, so basically an, an agreement, you might see a red line. You might see a little note next to the red line. I was always fascinated by what that little red note meant and how it changed perspective of the agreement and so the lawyers were just so inclined to like just answer questions whenever I had to ask them so that was really helpful. Was it like a concrete idea that you wanted to get into music somewhere or another or was it just kind of like oh I like like music growing up and I could see myself doing this? Honestly it was just a job at first and then you know, it was a job, it was extremely monotonous. It was just every day faxing, filing, answering the phones, fetching coffee. But the, the people there were great. You know, all the lawyers really embraced me. So it was a lot of fun. And then one day, I remember the day like it was yesterday when I really sort of found my focus. One day I opened up a piece of mail and in that mail was an envelope. And there was a check in that envelope for one of the clients and it was like the biggest check I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I was like, holy shit, I'm holding this check in my hand. It's not mine, it's still in my hand. So that's the moment where I think my life went from pursuing the arts as a graffiti artist, street artist Mm -hmm. at the time, to really focusing and learning about the business 
in hopes of one day attaining a check that size, mm-hmm. which I still haven't gotten, but you know, it's just that's the I was always like the, the dream. Mm-hmm. And so there we are. Were you also doing like street teams with like music and stuff early on? Well, yeah, but that was after I got fired from the law firm. Oh, okay. so I got fired from the law firm about a year and a half into it, and then I started another journey towards the same ultimate goal, and I found myself getting hired by a street team company whose job was to work with all like the major independent record labels and then at the time this was again before internet before a lot of ways that you market music now at the time it was about taking the music to the consumer directly Mm -hmm. like through handing out flyers putting up posters sitting in front of concerts and giving out samplers it was like a little bit of everything so I became kind of good at that and I built up a team of people who then would be hired by a variety of different companies, record labels, through this one company. And so that was sort of like my entry yeah. point into marketing. What did it entail? Like, were you selling these or were they like... So, for yeah. example, there was one project that was a singer-songwriter, a female singer-songwriter, and her audience was obviously a female demographic. So. I suggested that we go to like the Melrose area or the Fairfax area or anywhere in LA where there is a predominantly female base, Mm -hmm. whether it's like clothing shops, shoe shops, dress shops, whatever. So literally back in the day, you'd have to like go up to the clerk, ask to speak to the manager, say, hey, hi, I'm so-and-so from this company, trying to like promote this music, kind of put a poster up in your window kind of give you like a stack of samplers to like give away for free to any of your clients, like your customers, just to kind of get it to the consumer. So that was one way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Another way of doing it was literally standing outside of the forum back then. It was a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert Mm -hmm. and I was working in this other like alternative band and I would sit there and I would just like hand out samplers to hundreds of people that would just be storming out of the exit. As yeah. the concert was over. Samplers, were they just like a few songs on a CD? Yeah, like yeah. a CD, um, cardboard case, just freebies. Yeah. Yeah. Or they were cassette tapes, believe it or not, cassette tapes. Oh, and then, it's funny, so it's like I started off in the mailroom, right? And then did that for about a year and a half until I learned a couple more things about that business in the law firm, about the business as a whole. And then got fired. Then I went to go work for a marketing company, building street teams. Then that guy stopped paying me for some reason, so I couldn't pay my guys, so I had to quit. Mm. And then I got another job working records to college radio and new music shows on commercial radio, what is referred to as specialty radio. And that was a trip of a job because this company would basically go out and solicit a bunch of like unsigned artists. Um, and, you know, suggest that they hire them to service their music to college radio stations. At the time, it was another avenue, another vehicle to promote music. So my job every day was really funny. I would go into this guy's apartment in Hollywood. That's in front of a computer. And I'd literally have a stack of CDs, whatever CDs we were working that month. And I would call every radio station in the country, every college radio station wow. in the country. And I would start to build friendships with these radio station programmers like the music directors and the DJs and whatever and and with college radio there's a format for every genre right so if you call from like 9 to 10 a.m. 
they'll get the guy that does the reporting or the or the playing or the programming for like the rock channel if you call it like 2 p.m pacific standard time or 3 p.m east coast time they'll get like the other person that does the triple a stuff or the singer songwriter more leaning songs so like my whole job was to kind of build relationships with these college kids just long enough so that I can spend a good like 30 minutes with them each on the phone, learning about their life, learning about their, their what they're studying in school so that I can get them, get them, get their attention to play them songs over the phone to get feedback. Mm. So imagine like you're a college kid, yeah. right? I'm on the other phone, I'm on, you're on the phone, I'm on the other line of the phone and I'm promoting a song from this band because my job is to help them get a report with feedback from every radio station that's that we've sent the CD to. So I'm like, hey, what do you think of this band? I'm literally playing it over the phone, through a CD, through a speaker, and oh you're giving me feedback, and I'm literally putting that feedback in a report. Like, and right. I did that for, for months, until um, the holidays came around, and the college kids obviously go home for the holidays, so there's no real need for college radio promotion around that specific time of the year. So the guy that owned the company was like, hey man, you should go and like pursue something else, maybe get a job waitering or something, yeah. you know? And then after that, it's funny because with that college radio job, I got to go to like some of these like music festivals. Like there was one called CMJ that happens in New York every mm -hmm. year, the College Music Journal. And that's like all the college kids from all the college radio stations go to New York and it's kind of like a South by Southwest, but it's strictly for college music journal which are these college radio stations that complete that provide charts to the cmj journal um a radio reporting journal for college radio um so i got to meet this company while i was out there called pinch hit records believe it or not and that was uh my next job i became the director of sales and marketing for pinch hit records yeah <laughs> so so now if you look back, it's like, okay, started off in the mailroom, learned how to read contracts, uh, got fired, went to go work for a marketing company, build street teams, guy stopped paying us, then went to go work for a radio promotion company, getting songs on the radio. Then the you know, holidays came and then went to go work. This is like over a period of like three, four, five years. And then the and then Pinch It hired me to do sales and marketing, and that's when I was like, okay. I can kind of do this. I don't know what it means, but I'll figure it out. So I would have to basically deal with regional distributors. So back then it was still CDs, right? So CDs were like really popular. And there were stores like Best Buy, Walmart, Target, Circuit City, Sam Goody, The Warehouse. Um, uh, there's all these chains throughout the East Coast, but they all bought their music from different distributors. So let's just say, for example, one of the bands at Pinch Hit Records was on tour in like Wisconsin, right? And my job was to make sure that when they got to that small little town in Wisconsin, their CD was in the local record store. And there was a poster in that store with the show date and the time with a picture of the album cover. And there was like little giveaways or stickers that I could send along with the music because it was all done like on consignment, right? Where you basically send them a box of CDs they put them out there for purchase, and then whatever they don't purchase, they send them back to you, mm. right? And they only send you money that you would actually sell. Or you would set up like an in-store appearance and have the band come by and like do a little show before their actual show that night. So that was my job, figuring out any way possible to get a number of records from whatever artists were coming into town 
to make sure that those CDs were in that store. But that came with like a whole other part of the job where you're dealing with a distributor in the Pacific Northwest, a distributor in the Southeast, a distributor in the Northeast, because these stores are so small, they don't buy from like the big box distributors. They buy from these local regional distributors. So you have to literally talk to the store first, find out who they buy from, then go to the distributor, make sure they even carry your record. And if they don't carry your record, you have to find a way for them to carry your record so they can get to the store. So it's just like all these oh, like wow. moving <laughs> things around. But it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about returns because there was a lot of returns. I learned a lot about drop shipping and what it means to the artists. More importantly, it's to the artists, right? The artist wants to come, wants to know that when they're touring, they're touring for a reason. Their label is actually putting the effort to make sure that their music is in the store near the concert venue. Mm -hmm. So that was like the, that's what I loved about it. It was like always a challenge. And then I'd call the band and I'd be like, hey, did you see your store and your, your CD in the store? And like, yeah, man, thank you so much. Oh, they don't know awesome. that it took like freaking yeah. a week and a half to get it there. Wow. You know? So that was that job. And yeah. then you started like A&R stuff after, right? Well, then it's funny. So like, I always think in reverse. So I always think like, okay, so I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. So I've done the, the law firm and learned the contracts, did the street marketing, did the radio promotion, did the sales and marketing, but I'm still not making any money and I haven't got anywhere near that big check that I once had in my hand. Mm -hmm. I'm getting nowhere near it. So I remember one of the lawyers at the law firm telling me, Peter, the only way you're going to make money in this business is if you're a manager. I'm like, okay, sure. I'll go try management out. Um, so sort of managing bands that I would see out in the nightclub, uh, in the nightlife, and uh, built up a little like army of really cool indie developing bands across multiple genres and then what were they uh well the one band that i loved the most was a band called 3d stereo mm -hmm. and this is this band that i found i attended a party i forgot how i attended this party but i attended this party and there was this band playing in this garage and i was like oh shit i could manage these guys i could probably take these guys to the next level or i thought i could <laughs> um and uh I actually did. It's crazy. I used all my experience from street marketing, to sales and marketing, to radio promotion, to reading like fundamentals behind a contract to like get yeah. this band to, to the next level. Wow. Um, and then it became really funny because the band started kind of like bubbling up within the industry. Mm -hmm. They're doing all these like industry showcases, which then caught the eyes of like all of these like high level major label A&R executives. What age were you at this point? Oh man, this is like 99? So, I don't know, I'm 40, 42 now, it's 2018. Maybe I'm uh, 75, 85, 95. So, I'm like 20. Early 20s? 5, 26. While you were still managing them, were you, was that under a company or were you just kind of freelance managing no, them? No, I have, I've had like, I've built like three different management, I've built like three different management companies um, under three different names at the <laughs> time. I think it was called Triton Artist Management and it was T-R-Y-T-O-N and the logo was a combination of like two T's that looked like, like a, a volcano. It was like a volcano, <laughs> but it was like two T's. Yeah. I have a, I have a card somewhere of it. I'll show it to you. Um, 
but it stood for try handling a ton of artists like me management. Oh my gosh. Um, people thought I was crazy, but it probably was now looking back at it. Uh, so this one band, 3D Stereo, started bubbling up, um, started selling out clubs in LA, started building up industry awareness. And then that's when I started getting calls from like all of these record labels and all of these like A&R guys wanting to meet with me about my band. So, you know, they all had different styles of how they're going to court you to have you want to sign to their company. Mm -hmm. Some guys were like more aggressive. Some guys were like more fun and party. Some guys were just like really straight to the point. Um, and, and we ended up trying to go a different route. But through that process, the lawyer who I had representing the band also represented a number of other acts and he was becoming very prominent in his field mm -hmm. as a young lawyer. So he called me and was like, hey man, Electra Records is looking for a new scout in LA. I think you would be great. Um, why don't you meet up with this guy? So I met up with the guy. I'm going to keep all the names like off for now because mm -hmm. I don't want to like throw anybody under the bus. But I met up with this guy and he was like, hey man, I hear great things about you. I hear you're a hustler or whatever, whatever. Um, I need a scout. I'm like, awesome. And I said to him, I don't care what it pays. I don't even need any money for the first three months. Just give me an opportunity to, to, to like go out there and scout for you. And I'll make sure that you know where every single record label, A&R guy, what show he's at or they're at or she's at, um, what they're looking at, what they're pursuing to sign. And I'll make sure that you know of every single thing happening within that space of our industry. And three months went by and I did exactly what I said. And uh, through that process, I discovered an artist that became like my first discovery. Um, Who was it? This kid named, well, this artist named Ricky Fonte. Uh, Ricky Fonte, R-I-C-K-Y-F-A-N-T-E. But then I started managing another artist at the same time that I was developing Ricky at Electra, I started managing this other artist named Poet Named Life, who was part of like, at the time, like the Black Eyed Peas family. Mm. But he was signed to a label called Atomic Pop, which most of you don't know was the first internet record label to ever exist. Oh, wow. And this is like 2000, 2001. Wow. Yeah, so Manage Poet, Developing Ricky. Ricky was a phenomenal soul singer. Like his voice reminded you of like Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Sam Cooke. It was like this texture that no other singer at the time had. So I went to my boss at a lecture and I was like, hey, what should I do with this person that can sing like this? And he goes, well, you should go develop it. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, what does that cost? He's like, no doesn't cost you anything. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, just, just go. Here's a list of music publishers. Go to these music publishers and ask them, hey, which of your songwriters or your producers have finished demo songs written out that I could take Ricky and record his vocals using your song and your lyric? So I did that, and that's how I learned how to develop an act without spending a dime. If you have a great singer, and you have good songs and it becomes really easy. Electra never signed the artist, but um, it was a great experience because I learned how to develop an artist. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I found another artist um, named Mozella, who I also did sort of, also pursued the same sort of route, but she was a phenomenal songwriter and she's actually one of the biggest songwriters today. Um, she's fantastic. Um, 
but it was just a different approach to developing an act. With Mozella, it was more about letting her songwriting skill, skill set shine through. So we did a bunch of showcases, um, and then she got signed to Maverick Records in like 2003. Uh, but then I was also developing other acts and still managing and kind of doing a little bit of everything mm -hmm. just to kind of keep myself relevant yeah. and not just sitting, not having all my eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. After that, Mozilla got signed. My boss at Electra got moved to Virgin Records, which is, which is like a competing label. He got let go and moved to Virgin. Ended up signing Ricky Fonte to Virgin. I was moved to a different company within Electra called No Name, and I had the privilege of working with this incredible A&R guy named Steve Richards, who passed away, I think, in like 2005. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. Incredible guy, man. This guy was like so passionate, so energetic, but he had a certain niche that he worked under, which was like this hard rock. He managed Slipknot. He had Mudvayne. He had No One. He had all of these like hard, hard bands but that sound was just starting to bubble up out of the Midwest. Because what you had before that sound was more of like, like the rap rock stuff, you know? And before the rap rock stuff, you had like the sync type stuff and the 98 Degrees type stuff. So like everything was evolving and I was sort of watching it all evolve as it was evolving. It was kind of crazy. But Steve was amazing because Steve, I learned how to like, one, not put up with anybody's bullshit and two, uh, know that in this business all you have is your reputation mm. so yeah it was an incredible journey it's, he, was, he unfortunately passed away um, but I learned a lot from him Yeah, I found myself like unemployed but I had an act that I was managing on, on, a, on a label I got the next coolest job I could think of and I booked the shittiest club on Sunset Strip called the Cat Club mm -hmm. um, which, was, which is now where like Rock and Rallies is there used to be a club there, a famous rock club. It was owned by the drummer from Stray Cat, Slim Jim Phantom, and another business partner um, who came from the nightlife in the 80s, a club owner. And so to keep myself in the industry, to keep myself relevant, I took this job booking the Cat Club, which was like one of the hardest nightclubs to book on Sunset Strip because it was an older club. The stage was set aside when you had to walk through the door to go walk right in front of the stage. It was like a really sh weird layout. But I used my skill set and knowing how the A&R community works to try and like create the space or the club into like more of a, a good music club instead of like a 80s hair metal club. Mm -hmm. But I learned really quickly that it's not about the music when you're working in a nightclub. It's about the bar business. It's about selling drinks no one gives a shit if you have fucking Bob Dylan playing there. Mm -hmm. But if you're only selling one drink, then you're in trouble. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. And then out of nowhere, this other company that we used to share office space with when I was with Steve Richards at No Name called Thrive had asked me to come join their company and to help them evolve their, their artist roster from just not just electronic artists, but to like other types of music artists. Mm -hmm. So I took that job. Um, it was a lot of fun. Learned a lot about the electronic music business. Yeah, was that the first time you were yeah. learning about electronic, electronic yeah. music? Yeah, it was crazy. It was like guys like Paul Oakenfold, Ronnie Size, Deep Dish, Sandra Kleinenberg, Seth Fontaine, John Digweed, Hernan Catano, Sandra Collins, 
it was just this crazy uh, sort of sort of focus from like going from like the rock space then into the electronic music space. Yeah. It was just like whoa. <laughs> um, but it was great because one, it wasn't as popular as it is now. Um, and two, there weren't as many artists or labels pursuing that style of music mm. at the time. So competition wasn't really there, except for one label. Um, and, and it was wild because it turned into, you know, DJs were making compilations, which are now like playlists in some sense or they're like mixes now, but they were actual compilations that you would have to package onto a CD oh, wow. and sell it in a record store. Um, and so that was a definite crazy experience. Yeah. I got to sort of learn the ins and outs and the nuts and bolts of how that side of the business works mm -hmm. on the electronic music side. And then after that, did you go into Mind of a Genius? No, and then after that, <laughs> after that, I didn't go to Mind of a Genius until 2014, but it was while I was at that one company, Thrive, that I just that I came across this uh, this great producer, young 18-year-old kid, time, um, who ended up becoming the founder of Mind of a Genius. So I kind of joined Mind of a Genius way back then in my yeah. mind. But in actuality, the first release was in 2014, oh. and it was the Zoo Night Day EP. How has your role there changed over time? My role has always been like an advisory one. David Dan, the founder of the company, uh, is also a producer DJ and had established himself as a pretty notable one throughout South America, and then met Zoo, and then started working with Zoo on his EP. Um, and... When the EP was completed, David, who I kept in contact with while he was pursuing his DJ career after we worked at Thrive, came and was like, hey man, what should I do with this? And I was like, hey, well, let's set up a distribution for it. So I introduced him to the distributor and that became like a very successful release, not just for Zoo, but for Mind of a Genius and, you know, for electronic music as a whole. Because mm. it just kind of pushed the genre forward in a new sound that had not been there. Everything was very fist-pumping EDM, and he was coming in with a very sleek, sexy approach yeah. to dance music. So it was a lot of fun to kind of like be on the frontier and to be able to sort of push the culture forward. My main job at Moog as the GM is to always try to create like a collaborative environment mm -hmm. because the artists are so cutting edge, right? Their management teams are even are, are equally as cutting edge in the way they think and the way they approach things. And then our label staff, very small but dedicated label staff, are also very cutting edge in how they think. So when you have three different types of great thinkers or great teams of thinkers all pushing the same idea towards you, there's a lot of room for roadblocks and miscommunication and, and things of that sort. So my job is to really kind of like help keep that flowing and be able to provide the artists, whether it's they, Zoo, Galant, Quangstaff, Quay, with whatever they need, resources, support, guidance, administrative, clerical services so that they can continue to push their art forward. Do you have very specific 
different types of like campaigns for each project because they all have different different styles like R&B or electronic. Yeah, no artist is alike. Um, but every artist is so true to themselves. So when you have that type of art, it's imperative that you create the best approach to get their art to their exact consumer base, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're doing only electronic music, then you can use the same community of bloggers or promotion people or remixers to do the same job over and over again. But when you're going from like an artist like Zoo to artists like Gallant to an artist like They to an artist like Clangstaff and to an artist like Quay, like you really get to think outside the box because the artists are equally outside the box. And it's a lot of fun. So every campaign is very different. Yeah. Um, every campaign is very uh, true to how to best target the individual artist consumer. But every campaign is also made responsibly uh, so that you can have the best outcome. And it's also like, which also, which is why it works, because it's mm -hmm. also different. Yeah. There's, there's no two alike. Was it actually difficult for you going from all the like records and that type of logistics to everything like Spotify and digital and so much faster? Yeah, I mean, so like I said before, I'm 42, almost 43. I was in the record business, started off when it was cassette tapes into CDs, right? And then CDs into like piracy and then piracy into like MP3 and then MP3 into streaming, right? So. Yeah. Everyone thinks very differently, but to be able to have that transition, it's important that you also have that perspective, and that understanding of how music has been consumed and has been sent to consumers in the past, to be able to really understand how to best create the platforms for discovery of music today. Mm -hmm. So I think it all kind of like for me, it's all full circle. Like I couldn't be where I am today if I hadn't had that experience back in the day with cassettes or with vinyls or with CDs or with MP3s or with whatever. How does Mind of a Genius choose who they want on their roster? Because it's so selective, I feel like. Yeah, it's pretty, it's a, I think it's a gut feeling. I think David Dan makes the ultimate decisions on what artists get signed to the company. I think David Dan is sort of the future of this, is definitely the future of this business. Not just from a, a record executive, but also from a talent scout perspective. Um, and he has some of the best years in the business, in my opinion. And I'm just like, I'm able to look at him and say, okay, what do you think? I can find a group and play for him and he might say it's not right for Mo, but it's good. You know, keep doing whatever you're doing. Or I could say to him, here's a group, that, here's an artist that I found, what do you think? And he might say he loves it, and then we want to work with him and we'll develop it and so forth. But ultimately, it comes down to David. What future plans would you say there are for Mind of a Genius? Mind of a Genius, future plans. Um, there's more artists coming, mm -hmm. that's for sure. There's more Mind of a Genius branded events happening. Um, we're going to establish the brand as a brand of this culture, but of cultures to come mm. and to follow. And it's gonna be very tasteful. Um, but at the end of the day, we're just gonna keep growing. I envision the staff will grow eventually to support the level of artists that we have. Um, 
But yeah, I think we're just gonna grow, but we're gonna grow consistently. Yeah, we're I not love in any that. hurry. Yeah, we have great. a lot of people that want to come work at the company. We have a lot of people that want to come intern at the company. Um, we try our best to like respond to every request, um, but it ultimately comes down to like a gut feeling that we all have as a company. Because we're so small, we're very family oriented. Um, when I mean small, I mean like less than 10 people work at Mind of a Genius. Um, maybe more like less than five or five people work at Mind of a Genius regularly throughout the day. So everything we do has to be able to, anyone that we bring in, whether it's an artist, whether it's a, an intern, whether it's a new hire, it has to kind of work really well with the others. Yeah. What goal do you have coming up for yourself now? So for myself, I really want to be able to help and serve other aspiring executives, whether they're managers, A&R executives, marketing executives, because I feel like what I'm best able to do is provide them with the perspective and the knowledge and the understanding and also the relationships so that they can become better at what they do today. Mm -hmm. So my focus really is on, is on giving to others some of the information, some of the mistakes that I've made so that they don't make the same ones that I did. Yeah, that's awesome. And pay it forward. Thank you for sharing your story. That was really, really cool. Learned oh. so much and everyone here learning so much. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Sweet. Bye.